I take that responsibility seriously and I look at it as a privilege because I honestly think it is. What I've had to grow into over time, though, is understanding that without creating other leaders behind you in that followership group, you really haven't done the full job. So you have to give away enough stuff, enough pieces of yourself, enough pieces of responsibility that the leaders start to rise behind you. And when the leaders start to rise behind you, the job gets easier and easier and easier. So that's what I would say my lesson has been is the more leaders I create from the followership group beside me, behind me and around me, the more productive we get and the more economically in the marketplace we win. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Today's bonus episode of How Success Happened is brought to you by Principal Financial Group. Discover insight to help support your employees and your business at principal.com backslash businesses. That's principal.com backslash businesses. Amy Frederick is the president of U.S. Insurance Solutions at Principal Financial Group. Learning the importance of leadership and partnership from a young age, Amy currently seeks to develop better solutions for businesses to improve their workplace community. She grew up on a farm, working from a young age for hours upon hours to help support her parents' business. She learned so much from this experience and, of course, from her mother and father. There is no doubt it shaped her and helped her to become the success she is today. In this episode of How Success Happens, Amy shares how business owners can foster greater conversations in the workplace and manage employee wellness and burnout in the current economic climate. Something right now we all could use. Thanks for the intro and the question. Here's my background. I am, in fact, sort of that stereotypical Iowa farm girl. And I, I there's not actually a ton of people in Iowa who probably still grow up on, on working farms, but I sure did. I grew up during the 70s and the 80s in central Iowa on a farm that had row crop, corn and soybeans. And we had cattle and sheep and I was in 4-H and I had chores in the morning when it was cold and I had chores at night when it was dark. And so I grew up part of a small business, like a sole proprietorship. And I didn't even, I didn't even understand that at the time. Uh, What I knew was that life was tough sometimes, that we paid attention to things like the weather, that we worried about droughts and we worried about too much rain. And I think those, some of my best memories though, are like going out with my dad. It was with a, it was like a a perk that we got to switch off. There were three of us kids. And during the season where we were harvesting, we would go out with dad and I would sleep in the back of the combine and I would fall asleep on fall nights during harvest. And then he would carry me in at night. And so it wasn't until years and years and years later, I realized we didn't have a babysitter. We didn't want to pay for the babysitter. That it was really about the fact that my dad had to work till midnight some nights. And that it was that my mom had taken a job back nursing, so wasn't going to be home. And so 
I didn't understand at the time that those were like someone today might call that, oh, that was grit and that was resilience. No, it wasn't. That was just my dad. And that was just what we did on the farm. So I I grew up as that was my backdrop to leadership. It's incredible because on this show, we interview entrepreneurs all the time. And I have to say, I do not think there are harder workers, more difficult situations, especially when we look back when you were there, 70s, 80s, and some of the farm crisis to build a business. Were you, I know you were young, but did you realize the effort you were putting in, your dad was putting in? Did you realize how hard you were working? No, (laughs) no, it was expected. And there was no sense of, is it optional that you're going to do these chores? Like it was one season where we were haying and we had some seasonal help who came in to help us uh, get the hay crop up and to get the baling done and to load it up in the barn. It was my job to fix all of them lunch. And I look back and I think I was like, 13. So it was my job to plan for that. My my mom had done the work to kind of get it set up, but it was my job to feed the crews, to do that. Like we all had our role. And I didn't think, I mean, I guess I knew it was hard work, but it was what the family did. It was, it was purpose. It was meaning. It was sort of connection to the land. And so when I look back, I think maybe as an adult, I'd almost complain about it today. Like, I don't want to do 16 hours, like, you know, three weeks in a row. But at the time, it was just sort of the rhythm of the season. And so I, I didn't think of it as hard work. I just thought of it as sort of a commitment to the farm, to the land, and to the community. It wasn't always easy, I'm sure. And there were difficult times, just like any business goes through ups and downs. What was it like sometimes when you know you heard there was a drought or you knew things weren't as good? Was that difficult on you? Do you still carry those memories? So I think my parents did their very best to be sort of leaders of the household and to shield us from that. So usually we just knew we could go build a hay fort and we could have kittens and we could have, you know, a pet dog outside and that we could be part of a a 4-H club that gave us an ability to be social and that we got to raise our own lambs and then sell them in the marketplace, you know, at the end of the county fair. So they hid a lot from us. I think as I got into my teenage years, I started to understand that the quieter conversations happening in the kitchen were when things were a little tight, that when I would come downstairs maybe and, and, and find my mom just taking a minute down in the basement where we did, you know, where she did the laundry, I started to understand she probably needed that minute because they were worried about uh, the weather conditions. Uh, if I, I knew we watched the weather all the time. So we always, every night and every morning paid attention to the weather. So what I would say is, I think my parents took a lot of it on themselves, but they used each other as true partners. Uh, They're still married. They're still together today. They're both 79 and they're both still farming. So they still actively farm. So, So no, I really didn't understand it. Looking back though, I think they gave me my first models of leadership and partnership. Let's talk about that because... It's incredible thinking growing up like that, especially it's funny 
for someone like me coming from New York City, right, where there's differences. But, you know, I always saw my father would wake up at like five in the morning and like never miss a day when he was sick, which I thought still do is kind of like totally crazy. But that was this mindset of having to provide for a family. Once you got older and you went to work outside of the family business, what was that first work experience like? Yes. And definitely there was the assumption that you did well in school. You probably did a bunch of extracurricular activities. I was in four different sports. So the assumption was you took care of that too, but then you also found some time to do some work outside the home. So the first job I actually got was the job that I had to work around the hours when I was needed, you know, at home. And it was a summer job. And then I had to work around at the time, what was my softball schedule? So the job that really worked for that was to be a a motel mate. So I was there at about probably six o'clock in the morning because some of the first people checked out really early. And by about 11 o'clock in the morning, I was usually done, had most of my rooms that were assigned to me uh, cleaned. And so I certainly knew how to scrub toilets. I knew how to work hard. I knew how to make beds. I knew how to throw loads of you know laundry in. And so that didn't phase me at all. So my first job was really one that it just fit in with the other two or three jobs I had, but I happened to get paid for that one. So that was the only difference in my in my first one. So I would say the work ethic was still there, but the um, clear expectations from my parents and from my family and from the community I was in was that I would um, take responsibility and whatever discretionary income I needed or I wanted to save for a, a school trip. It was my job to work to save for that school trip. And I was fine doing that. It was good experience for me. I always leave a good tip at a hotel at this point. So let's just put it that way. I understand that that is a hard job. You realize the hard work. And we are going to talk about burnout on this show. (laughs) First, I want to ask you, though, about leadership. Leadership's a really important topic, especially with principal and all the leaders you deal with, you know, in terms of small business owners, medium-sized business owners, I would assume you had some early lessons from your mother and father that you still carry today about being a good leader. I do. So one of the things that that is inherent in uh, leadership is who's following you and why. And if you literally have no one following you, then even if you hold the title of a leader, you aren't actually a leader. So I would say my we were raised in a in a community where we did, you know, attend church on a regular basis. So whether whether it was 4H club or youth group or school activities, I remember my parents saying they expected me to be someone that people would be willing to follow. Now they were usually saying that in the context of hard work and great ethics. What I started to learn later in the working world is that also meant having a compelling purpose, being able to give people a, a path that was exciting or interesting or purpose, you know, purposeful enough that people actually wanted to follow. So those early lessons were kind of, you know, ethics and hard work. But I would say the lessons that came after that were the more that you can make your work meaningful, the more that you can help people understand that they're doing something that helps lead towards the bigger purpose. And again, principal, I don't have any trouble with that because our products keep 
people out of poverty. We help other business owners grow their business. So when we look at, you know, half of the gross domestic product is going to be something that relies on those small business owners. So I've got no problem on any given day feeling a great sense of purpose. It's really only my fault if I can't tell a story or shape that vision for other people. That's my that's my problem as a leader, not the problem with the business that we're in or the people we're helping. You know, you've risen through the ranks into your current role, which in terms of leadership and the amount of people reporting to you and, and the level you are at now, you have had to climb the ladder and not in probably the best of times for women specifically in terms of getting promotions. Do you recall some of those instances and how did you deal with them from leaders or who you thought were leaders and didn't do right by you or promote you? Yeah. So I think the great news is I never spent a ton of time. I'm sure there were times where someone passed me over, someone attributed something to my ambition that was sort of negative. My take was you surround yourself with people who are going to actually make you feel like give you feedback that helps you understand where you need to show up differently. And then the assumption would always be, I probably have something I need to work on to make the the story more compelling, to make my leadership more expert in certain areas. So I had times, yeah, where it is isolating to walk into room after room and be the only woman sitting in that room. That doesn't feel awesome. What I can tell you though, feels awesome though, is to start to leave a legacy and to start work, to work with a group of people where someone will say to me, one of the reasons I interviewed with your company is because I looked up who owned the PL responsibilities, who was on your board, who was on your leadership team, and it was filled with women. So I take it pretty seriously, but I don't take it personally. I do figure it's my job to try to make sure people understand both what I'm capable of and where I need help. And when I come after things authentically and ask for help in a way that is sort of honest to who I am, I have found in almost every scenario, I get a really positive reception to that. It sounds like you and not having ever worked for you, although one day maybe you'll hire me, hopefully. (laughs) It sounds like you are someone, like you said, initially that would have followers as opposed to saying I'm a leader and you don't have any followers. For you, what is the most important part of being a leader for your employees? So I see it as a privilege. You can change people's lives positively or negatively by sometimes a couple words placed or misplaced. I see it also as the ability to have a hundred small interactions in a month that are, you know, smiling at someone or giving them a thumbs up in a meeting or catching them afterwards and saying, that didn't land right. Let's talk about why that didn't land right. So I take that responsibility seriously and I look at it as a privilege because I honestly think it is. What I've had to grow into over time though is understanding that without creating other leaders behind you in that followership group, you really haven't you haven't done the full job. So you have to give away enough stuff, enough pieces of yourself, enough pieces of responsibility that the leaders start to rise behind you. And when the leaders start to rise behind you, the job gets easier and easier and easier. 
So that's what I would say my lesson has been is the more leaders I create from the followership group beside me and behind me and around me, the more productive we get and the more economically in the marketplace we win. Those are connected. I love that. I love that that's, you know, the way you view it and, and the folks at principle view it because there's a lot of people in corporate America, they're scared about the next person taking their job, their position, almost, you know, you, I hear it all the time. And that's like you said, not a true leader. It sounds like to me, the more people you could bring up, the better it's going to be for the organization and the better it's going to be for you as the top leader. Yeah. You asked the question, you actually used a term in there that I, that I don't think of very often, which is the latter kind of that, that ladder. I don't think of it as a ladder because it's kind of, there's only one person allowed and sort of one step at a time. I think of it as a table and I think of it as having a series of great conversations. So when people come to me and say something's off track, it's not working, this didn't go well, I'll start not asking about a meeting or an agenda or a spreadsheet, but I'll be like, tell me about a great conversation. So have you had a great conversation Mm -hmm. with that other person about this issue? And if their answer is sort of a, no, we really haven't had a great conversation. I'm like, okay, then go back, have a great conversation. Come back and tell me about that. And usually they come back then and say, all fixed. We got it. We're back on track again. So I think of the whole career thing as a series of fantastic conversations that got us to the point that we do great things with our customers and with each other. And I know I'm making it kind of sound like it's all happy talk, but in the end, those great conversations aren't easy conversations. They aren't always happy conversations, but they are great conversations and we get great work done. And I do believe being an entrepreneur myself that so much of leadership and also employee satisfaction and and building a business comes down to communication, positive communication. And I do think sometimes it's as easy as that to be able to say, listen, go talk about that. Because a lot of people, they, as leaders, they want to say, I'll handle this or I'll do this, which many do. And one thing about being a leader and other leaders is you have tons of responsibilities. You're, I know that it's a lot, a lot of hours going home, running a business, whether you're a small business owner, medium-sized business, a top executive like yourself. How does that leadership turn into burnout? Yeah, easily if you don't, if you don't manage it. So one of the things I will kind of laugh with people about, but I'm, I'm just really not kidding about this is like, they're like, oh, you must be an early morning person. I'm like, ah, actually, I'm not really, I'm not really an early morning person. Then they'll be like, okay, so you're a night owl. Actually, I'm not a night owl. <laughs> I'm like a really good sleeper. So I would say one of the things I do to avoid burnout is I sleep. Like I get a good night's sleep. I read a couple of books a week, a lot of fiction, not necessarily a bunch of, you know, hard hitting business books. I have a friendship group that I laugh with a ton. I would like to believe I laugh a heck of a lot more than I frown. So in the end, yeah, there is a point where burnout is very real. But I think if you take yourself a little less seriously, you manage some of your your own wellness, you can fight that. I will tell you though, I'm worried about 
smaller business owners that I'm seeing right now, their, their statistics are not pointing in the right direction. So when we do research and ask business owners you know, about their stress level, compared to a year ago, the employees are saying, I'm a little less stressed than I was, but the employers aren't saying that yet. 60% of them are still saying, I'm actually more stressed than I was last year. So I am worried about them. That's an amazing point because, you know, we talk about small business owners, meaning like there has been a lot of stress on those folks. And also in a good job market right now, there's a lot of opportunity for employees and also from what happened during the pandemic, wanting to work hybrid, whatever it might be. But for those small and medium-sized business owners, why is it that you're finding those are the people right now, as opposed to employees who are facing the most burnout? So I think they desperately have been trying to keep their employees steady, safe, enough business to make it meaningful. So they've really leaned into their employee experience, which arguably we probably always should should be doing that. But they're taking even more time. And I would say one of the things they'll say to me is, I never felt like, unless I ran a factory and had like, you know, safety floor standards, I didn't worry about the actual health of my employees. Like could gathering in an office be adverse to their health? So things like physical health, mental well-being, They always cared about those things, of course, before, but now they feel responsible for them. And so I think that's one of the things in the last couple of years that I'm picking up on is that if you haven't found some good ways to manage sort of more of a hybrid work, if you haven't done some investments in technology to make that more efficient for you, if you haven't extended some of your benefits or employee packages to include things like well-being and and mental health extensions of services, then as the employer, you're kind of trying to do that all yourself. And what I would say is that is a recipe for burnout. You can do that in spurts, but you can't do that for years at a time. Yeah. It's incredible to think, you know, it did take a pandemic, I think, to bring this to the forefront within the work world to understand and people being okay with the mental health aspect of everything, which of course leads to physical health. What are some of the best things that you've seen that these small, medium-sized business owners have done or implemented for their company to help to help them, their employees, make sure that they don't end up where they just can't operate anymore? Yeah. So I've seen them asking about more questions and they're totally appropriate questions about things like, okay, if my employee has to be away from work, is there are there products that help us manage and protect their income? Great. Yes, we can talk to you about that. If I have a medical plan, do I have any extensions that would give me some sort of an employee assistance program? Yes, ask about that because those exist. They're also saying things like, what if I gave people some time away to do things that they could pick on their own, like meditation, yoga, stress management, whatever, pet therapy, whatever it might be. People are actually talking about that at work. Like in the middle of a benefits conversation, you might say something about, you know, meditation or stress management. I can tell you years ago that never used to happen. So the best ones in terms of the types of things they're doing, they're asking 
the people that they work with, the uh, people who provide benefits or who provide insurance for them, they're asking them to come to the table with some of those solutions. And what I can tell you is the industry is responding pretty well. So there's things out there. There's products around paid leave that didn't even exist two or three years ago. And so there's innovation going on in the industry. And and some of the business owners, in my mind, that are managing it the best are having the most robust conversations about those things. You know, that it's funny because when you do think of some of these things and kind of that old school mentality going back years where you're lucky to have a job or, you know, the old boss, right? I remember one of my first jobs, they were like, you should just be happy you have a job. And I was like, but I want to do this, this, this. And it's very interesting now because as a business owner and like just in terms of some of the things that they could do for their employees, at the end of the day, it really, from everything I've seen, you could tell me better. Statistic wise, those companies are actually doing better financially. Yes, absolutely. So typically the best measure of that is employee engagement. So not necessarily even satisfaction, but kind of that engagement, having a series of questions that help them understand if they feel like there's you know purpose to the work they're doing. If they feel like if offered a similar job with a different company, do they feel tied to this company? So when you look at those engagement statistics, the higher the engagement, the higher the financial results. It's pretty darn clear. So removing barriers for people, making sure that they feel connected to other people, whether it's through technology or in person, has become absolutely critical to being kind of a a great employer. What I would say though, though, coming back to that employer, that small business owner, is the ones that probably are doing the very best job of managing it are the ones who know how to do things like share an emotional burden. So not just delegate, not just task organization, but they actually have found a community. They found partners. They found somewhere that they're actually sharing some of their kind of not just hopes and fears, but like I'm carrying an emotional burden about something going on with an employee or something that I'm worried about. And they've found a better community. What I'd also say is those that make sense of the chaos of the world through things like storytelling, those people are coping better. Interesting. As well. So those people who can tell a narrative and give it meaning and arc and story, they end up getting themselves and their employees pointed towards productivity in a better way. You know, it's interesting how you talked about for the owner finding that outlet, the community, the people they could talk to. I'm fortunate I have a partner, so we can go back and forth. A lot of people don't have partners. They need community groups or small business groups. But one thing I know about the majority of entrepreneurs is that's very difficult is actually delegating work, tasks where they can't let go. What do you advise as a leader for those people? So it comes back to, and it sounds sounds simple and it's not simple at all, but it's when you sit down and do a list of you know factors under my control, factors not under my control. That's your first cut. You can't take care of actions by the Fed in terms of interest rates. You can't, you can't, manage the equity markets. So those sit in factors outside of my control. Now, potentially you can do something to reduce your exposure 
to some of those macro conditions. Great. Maybe that's priority one. You sit down, start the list with factors under your control, and then you prioritize that. My guess is most people, and this would be a business owners I talk to, they don't manage more than two or three tasks, high priority items at one time very well. So if that list is 11 items long, you go to the top two and you get those actually done. And so putting frameworks to priorities and giving yourself permission, instead of worrying about 11 at one time, giving yourself permission to get one or two done first is absolutely the best coping mechanism I have seen from business owners. I love what you said, the whole thing. At the beginning though of that, you had really talked about what can I control? What can I control? Because many people, especially business owners who look at interest rates, inflation, they look at their own 401ks at this point. You could spend, not that I know anyone who does, <laughs> except myself, but um, you know, worried about, hey, what is you know my financial future? While the best thing you could do is focus on what, what's going to help this business. I can't control those other things. And then I love the fact where you said, if you can't delegate and you're doing 10 things, you're probably not, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but from what I got, you're not going to do any of those right. I love your idea of saying, take a few things and do those well and give the other things to other people and trust them. Yes. For me in particular, when I have more than three or four things going in any given day, it feels like chaos. I would argue I have fairly high functioning skills to handle multiple things. So if you've had a ton of practice, decades of this, and it still feels like chaos, my guess is those near the beginning of their careers or just starting their journey as a business owner, they're going to want to do just one or two at a time and for it not to feel chaotic. What I also learn is that the more those one or two get done, the more you actually get a sense, like you start to fill your emotional well back mm-hmm. up because you got something accomplished. Yeah. So then your head gets in the right place and you get even more productive. Worrying about all 11 all at once and four things outside of your control is just an exercise in chaos. Don't do it. So that's the advice I give all the time. Find your one or two, put them in the your under control pocket and then get after them. I love what you're saying there. And I feel you're speaking to me, which means you're speaking to probably the majority of our audience, which is a lot of people who are saying right now, you know what? Wow. I am burnt out. These are some good ideas. Give me if there's anything more just in terms of reversing burnout. Let's say you just listened to this podcast. You heard what you said and we're towards the end here. And you're like, wow, you know what? That's me. What could those people do right now? One of the things they can do right now is they can go back and look at their calendar, okay? Go back, pick two weeks. Look at every meeting you've done, every commitment you've said yes to, and go back and recreate those last two weeks based on those top two priorities. Here's what I guess most people will find. They'll find less than 10% of their time has actually been given 
to those top two priorities. So go back to your own calendar, look over 24 hours of every day, do it over two or three weeks and do the percentage of time you put towards those things that you think are actually the highest priority. You're going to find out you're not spending enough time. The way you let your calendar behave is the way you feel about Mm. yourself. That's incredible. Before I let you go, I want you to think back to that Iowa farm girl and the incredible, I mean, your story just from the hours and then working outside and and seeing what you've become. I'm kind of frightened for what my daughters is going to happen to them (laughs) when it's hard enough to get them to wash their dish, you know, from from dinner. When you, you think back, Could you ever at that point, even in time, imagine yourself in the position you're in today? So my mom to this day keeps me humble. And she will often say to me, I know you go into a fancy office and I know you go to fancy dinners and you go to fancy cities. Who did you help? Like, go back and tell me, like, there's someone in the community, and I mentioned them to you a couple of weeks ago. Have you done anything to follow up with that person in the community? So she's not trying to put a guilt trip on me. She's saying the definition of success is a human one. So I think we've lost sight of that a lot. So I think in the end, yeah, I've been successful on a lot of metrics. But on the other end of that spectrum, I've got more to do. I've got more people to help. I've got more, you know, small communities to try to make better. And so in the end, I'm nowhere near done, according to my mom's definition. I love your mom. (laughs) I love that. And I've really enjoyed it. I could see why you have been so successful in so many ways and areas. And I can see why a lot of clients business owners uh, are very fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to work with you. I picked up so much being a business owner myself from this conversation. I really wanted to thank you and thank you for sharing with us a lot of those tips and, and the secrets to your success. So Amy, again, appreciate coming on and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And, uh, Tons of credit goes to my parents. They raised me right. And I'm trying to do the same with my family and community and and with the company that I'm keeping at work. Amy, thanks again. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk soon. Thank you. And that's our show. Today's bonus episode of How Success Happens was brought to you by Principal Financial Group. Discover insight to help support your employees and your business at principal.com backslash businesses. That's principal.com backslash businesses. This podcast provides educational information only with the understanding that principal is not offering legal, accounting, investment, or tax advice. Business owners should consult with their counsel or other advisors when making business decisions. Insurance products and plan administrative services provided through Principal Life Insurance Company, a member of the Principal Financial Group, Des Moines, Iowa, 50392. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. 
If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business. Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.